WAGP.net. Hello, this is Carl Brogy, pastor of Community Bible Church. You know, I meet so many Christians who are discouraged, whose marriages are suffering, and whose children are uninterested in Jesus Christ, many times because they're starving to death spiritually. If you live in the Pooler Rinkin area and you're ready for a change, go to Community Bible Church, all one word, communitybiblechurch.us slash Pooler, and fill out an interest survey for our new satellite campus. By God's grace, we hope to open in the early spring of 2016. And if you can help me find a meeting place, maybe you have a building that you can loan us or a facility you can rent far below market price, or maybe you're in a church that's on the verge of extinction and you need help, I believe we can work together. Call me directly at 843-525-0089. That's 843-525-0089. May the Lord bless you as you walk with Him and love His Son. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We're so glad you can join us for the next hour. If you're a first-time listener, this is the Bible Line, and we take questions as people are studying the Bible and they need some help or an issue that they're facing in their life or ministry, maybe in their local church, and they want biblical counsel. Well, if we can help by the grace of God, we will do our best. All you need to do is pick up the phone again locally. It's 843-525-1859. We have a toll-free number for our internet listeners in WAGP.net streams around the world 24-7. And so the toll-free number is 877, the call letters, WAGP980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. Our email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply uh, dictate your question. So, Rick, let's go ahead and get started. I think we were working on a question when we ran out of time last week. Indeed, we did, Pastor. The caller wanted to know whether it honors God for a Christian couple to use birth control to limit the size of their family. Well, it's a good, good question. My wife and I wrote an article, and it is at her blog called Mothering from the Heart. But let me just comment on that because it's a fair question. It's one that we really need to ask. I think you have to start with some basic premises. One, that God's the creator of all life, and he views life as sacred. Just read Psalm 139, and it really reminds us of how God views us from conception all the way to the grave. And really, when a culture has a low view of uh, people in the womb, they will have a low view of people outside of the womb. Just this week, there was an issue of a man who... You know, he's hooked up to a number of uh, tubes, but he's, you know, totally conscious. Uh, He's uh, able to uh, write things down, talk with his hands. He's terminal. 
he has cancer and he won't live, you know, a whole lot longer. But the hospital wanted to unplug his uh, gear and he had to get uh, an attorney and a judge to step in. But you see, this is what's going on in our nation. And more and more, I think, as we see older adults whose maybe quality of life is not what it should be, we want to just pull the plug and dump them. So understanding life in the womb is important. And Psalm 139 takes us all the way from God weaving us together in our mother's womb to the grave itself. Uh, Of course, there's only one example in all the Bible where someone intentionally prevents the conception of children and they don't really have a high view of life. So I'm reading here from Genesis chapter 38 and uh, we read here beginning in verse six. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now we're not told specifically what the problem was with Judah's firstborn son, except that he's described here as wicked or evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, how wicked was he? Well, the scripture tells us in verse seven, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Chronicles says he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so he, God, put him to death. And here in Genesis, as it says, so the Lord took his life. You know, there, there are people in our world today who just think that they can flirt with sin and they can decide to get right whenever they want to. And then suddenly they're gone. And this man was one such person and God just took him away. He was gone. He was dead in a moment's time again in verse eight. And this is the issue where someone doesn't really see life as sacred. And this is why I'm illustrating it. The man's name is Onan. We read here in Genesis 38, eight, then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, God knew that uh, the family's future was in jeopardy. And so he allowed something that you can read about in the Torah in Deuteronomy 25 called what we call leveret marriage. Lever is from the Latin meaning brother-in-law. And so in this particular day, Onan was to marry his brother's wife to give her children. Why? That the family name could be carried on. And God will later codify that. He hadn't at this point but he codifies it in the law of Moses. And in this culture, the Jewish culture, especially an heir was so very, very important uh, to secure the family's inheritance, but also, you know, to care for the parents in their old age. You know, we live in a day when older people just aren't cared for and we just put them away so we don't have to deal with them. You know, I've been to other countries of the world where even the non-Christians have a higher view of life than believers do sometimes in our own nation. You know, Paul says in first Timothy five for a believer not to care for his own. And he's not looking down, but he's actually looking up. Uh, That is uh, children and grandchildren caring for their own, meaning their parents or their grandparents, that he's worse than an infidel. He's worse than an unbeliever. Uh, so I was in India a couple months ago, and I was just reminded afresh that even the Hindu people, one, the th- concept of abortion is just abominable to them. They wouldn't entertain it for a second. In either case, they have a higher view of family so that their older ones are cared for and they're not just carried away. Now, look, I realize there are some people who medically cannot care for someone, but we don't abandon our parents. 
And so Leverett marriage was essential in this day, not only in terms of caring for uh, the parents, but also in securing the family inheritance. And so you see examples of this. For instance, uh, you have Boaz and Ruth and the next of kin had the opportunity to marry her. Uh, He wasn't interested. And since Boaz had pleaded, he had a legal right to do it. So Onan agrees, but he agrees, unfortunately, under false pretenses. And so we read here in Genesis 38, 9, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. And so the way it worked is the first child you would have, you would end up marrying your brother's wife. And in this case, he was he was an eligible bachelor. He was next in line. The first one would basically be his brother's firstborn. And then after that, the rest would be his. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, the firstborn. The other kids would be. So when he went into his brother's wife, the Bible says here, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. Now, again, remember Deuteronomy 25, you can go back and read it. It actually names uh, the deceased uh, brother-in-law's firstborn as being the deceased persons. But Onan's not really interested in raising up a firstborn for his brother. He's only interested in using this woman. He wants to use her for sexual pleasure, but he doesn't really want to uh, have a child with her. And really, that's kind of where our culture has come, especially through birth control. People want sexual pleasure without responsibility. Now, my Roman Catholic friends uh, use this verse as a basis for prohibiting, you know, all methods of birth control. And let me just say parenthetically here, without a doubt, there are certainly some methods of birth control that are evil. Why? Because they're nothing more than abortifacients. Uh, They create an abortion. And there are some Christians who are just ignorant of the means that they're using in terms of birth birth control. They're actually uh, stopping in killing a baby that has already been conceived. So when we think about uh, having children, God looked down on what Onan did. Why? Because God is up on life. And, and again, this is the only reference in the whole Bible to directly preventing conception. And God ended up taking the guy out. God wants us to have a different view of children. Uh, We don't really see children anymore as blessings. We see them as burdens. And yet here in Psalm 127, it says, behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They'll not be ashamed of them when they speak with their enemies in the gates. So God, you know, describes children in Psalm 127. And then you could read in the next Psalm 128 is blessings is a heritage like olive branches and we speak of them as burdens and something that we just have to maintain and deal with but they're gifts from God and I don't really see a lot of Christians in our culture as we have degenerated with the culture at least in America who have this perspective and certainly across Europe you know we have the idea of God bless me you know financially God bless me with good health but certainly don't bless me with any more children or any children. And that's really, that's really sad. And yet they are called a blessing from God. And yet you have your third child and people look at you kind of funny. Now, when we had just four children, God only gave us five. But when we had four children, I was in 
Walmart one day and I took my kids with me and whenever I go somewhere, I would always take a, a child with me. And even today, if I have grandchildren with me, I see it as an opportunity to spend some alone time with a child and to build into their lives and to ask them questions. So I have all four on this particular day. And this lady in Walmart, this elderly lady, in fact, I could say her name because her name is a well-known name in Beaufort County, but I won't. Um, but I do know that uh, she was very, very much in favor of bringing Planned Parenthood here to Beaufort County a number of years ago. But because of some of the Christians at Community Bible Church and a couple of other fellowships who just stood out on the highway uh, where Planned Parenthood was going to have uh, their little clinic, uh, they didn't stay in business. And I'm thankful to the Lord for that. Nonetheless, she just railed at me because I had four children and what a wicked person I was basically uh, for, for having a different view of children than she did. Look, God said, be fruitful and multiply. He said, children are a blessing. And that command in Genesis has never been nullified by any command anywhere in the word of God. It's one of God's purposes for marriage. Um, now, I will say that God never gives any specific instruction in the Bible about how large a family would be. In fact, it's, it's assumed that believers, I think, will seek him and they'll not just follow the culture. We're, we're told not to be shaped uh, into the world's mold, but we're to be transformed through the renewing of our mind. And so God is clearly pro-conception. He's clearly pro-life in the scripture. And we, we live in a day when Christians say they're pro-life and they use the term typically only in terms of preventing abortion, but not necessarily in favor of having children. And so there are certainly people who are infertile and it might be that God would never want them to have children uh, because he has a different plan for them. There are other couples who are infertile that maybe God would want them to be able to adopt. I remember praying with a couple not long ago in our church and she came up to me on Sunday and showed me her brand new little baby that they had just adopted and what an answer to prayer that was. Um, but God doesn't really envision in his word couples who get married, who get married to choose not to have children. But that's the reality of uh, some mindsets by some Christians in our day or to really dramatically limit the family. Well, I want one or maybe at the most two, but certainly not three. Well, why not? Why not three? Why not four? Why not five? Maybe more. Um, again, with that said, how many is enough? Well, I think this is an individual decision each couple needs to make. And so do I believe in birth control? Well, it depends what you mean by that. Uh, I will say that there is a principle that's taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that helps me to understand a little bit uh, about what we might call family planning. Um, Paul is addressing husbands and wives in the physical realm in first Corinthians seven and verse four. He says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. And so he says, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then to come together again, lest Satan tempt you. So God talks about the necessity of the physical aspect in the marriage relationship. But he also um, speaks about a couple coming apart, not habitually. 
to avoid the responsibility of, you know, raising kids. The, the purpose is a time frame that's short, that's mutually agreed upon. upon. So it might be that a, a couple are really seeking God and maybe they have, you know, three, four, five, six kids and they're wondering, well, Lord, can we financially manage another? Or maybe your wife has some health issues or maybe he does and his ability to uh, make income is maybe being challenged and or perhaps, you know, they're concerned about being able to properly raise more children. And so they can seek God in prayer. They can come apart. Obviously, there is just a handful of days during the month that any sensitive woman will woman will know when that is, when she can actually conceive. And a couple can come apart for the purpose of prayer, for the purpose of seeking God. And then if God wants to overrule, he certainly can. So Malachi, the prophet, I preached a whole series on Malachi once. We went through every um, verse of Malachi, but Malachi affirms that God wants his people to have children. And that's one of the reasons he so much hates divorce because what it does to the children. Uh, There are people who say, well, our kids would be better off, you know, if we're just divorced. Well, that most of the time is just not true. Now, it is true there are times, as uh, this same chapter affirms, where uh, maybe because a man is, say, uh, abusive or a drunk or a drug addict or a a habitual adulterer, that uh, a woman can separate from her husband. Uh, But even if she does that, uh, based on the Lord's instructions, her admonition is to remain single or fix it, be reconciled to your husband. So with that said, again, God's pro-life, he sees children as a blessing. We're commanded to be fruitful and to multiply. God hated what Onan did um, in spilling his seed. Uh, God makes it very clear that we're not to let the world shape us into its mold. He does allow for couples to come apart for a short period of time to be able to pray and seek God. And I think to, <laughs> excuse me, some Christians think that, you know, if they don't use birth control pills or the man doesn't have a vasectomy or she doesn't have her tubes tied, that, you know, they're going to have 15 to 20 kids. Well, they might. I just had a rabbi here uh, who's become a friend of mine. I'm looking forward when we go to Israel later this year, he's invited me to come to his home. He has 18 kids. Now, some of them are already grown and out of the house. We're actually the same age. He's a couple months older than I am. Uh, and a few of them are already married and have kids, but he still has quite a large number at home, but that's very unusual. Now I think they had three sets of twins, if I remember. Uh, but nonetheless, that's unusual for a person to be able to have that many children, but is it bad? If you asked him, is there any of those kids you wish you didn't have? He would say no. Uh, He would say, I'm so thankful to God for every single baby that God has given me. And so, you know, we need to seek God. We need to trust his sovereignty, his providence. And we need to let this whole idea of children be reshaped. You know who's having all the children in the country in America? There's two groups of people. There's the Hispanics. They tend to have a pro-life view of conception. And a lot of those are Roman Catholics, uh, though in some parts and pockets of South America where a number of Hispanics are coming in, they are evangelical slash Pentecostal. 
Um, but the biggest single group in America that are having children are Muslims. And so by 2030, we're talking about 15 years from now, it is estimated that we will have a minimum. I mean, forget, you know, we, if we shut the door from here on in, you know, as some maybe political leaders want to do, we'll have at least 50 million Muslims in America. They're taking over. And what's going to change even more radically is the um, aging and graying of America. We have a growing number for the first time in American history. It crossed the line a few years ago. Uh, we have more than half the people who are over the age of 50. And so we have the grain of America. And who are these people who are pouring into the nations of Europe? Are they, you know, 40, 50, 60 year old Muslims? No, they're 18, 20. In fact, there are some Arab nations where, uh, for instance, in Jordan, 75% of the people in the country of Jordan are 25 years of age or under. You're talking about a huge swelling population who's deeply committed to coming to our nation and espousing their values. Now, we need to love the Muslims that are here. Wisdom would dictate that we would be wise in terms of who we let across the border and who we allow in as Americans. Look, if you don't want to come in and respect American law, and you want to, you know, have Sharia law, then you've come to the wrong country. And so we need to ask some serious questions and, and really find out where some of these people are coming from. But my point is, is America is going to change and the people who should be having children, who should be raising up a godly heritage are not having children or they are dramatically limiting their family size. Why? For convenience, because it's too much work because it's too much strain, because we don't want it to affect our financial picture. Look, when it's all done and over, all the things that you acquire in this life, they're going to be left behind. And children don't make a, a, a rich man poor, they make a poor man richer. Because if you raise your children for the Lord, you'll take them into eternity with you. And my, what a blessed Blessed, blessed gift of God that is. Anyway, I hope that helps. But again, you might want to go to uh, my wife's blog, Mothering from the Heart. We wrote a little thing on there on birth control, and I think you might find that useful. Let's go to the next question. I spent a lot of time on that. Last time we ran out of time, but I knew it was an important question. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on this morning's Bible line. Or you can do as Jamie from Lilliwop, Washington did and email her question to tbl at wagp.net. She writes, in a recent conversation I had with someone who defends moderate Islam, one argument given to me concerning the verses in the Quran which appear to support violence against Christians and Jews, it was compared to the Jewish practices in the Old Testament that are no longer practiced today. The Quran provides specific injunctions to engage in acts of violence as part of the holy war, the jihad, in the cause of their religion. People are drawing comparisons between Islamic terrorist attacks and the violence found in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. But are these comparisons valid? Are the commands of God to the Israelites in the Old Testament the same as jihad, as prescribed in the Quran? Well, that's a, that's a great question, so let me respond. Uh, let me just say that 
much like in Christianity, there are true Christians and there are nominal Christians. Certainly the majority of quote unquote Christians in America are nominal. And by the way, Jesus said it would always be this way wherever you go. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, he said, broad is the road, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And many are those that are on it. Uh, Narrow is the gate, small is the road that leads to life and few are those who find it. And so he admonishes us to enter by the narrow gate and not by the wide gate. And if you know the context of that passage in Matthew 7, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's actually describing people who profess Christianity. He's not talking about all the isms of the world. But amongst even those who say, I am a Christian and approximately 3 billion people on the planet do, Jesus said, actually, the majority are on the broad road that are leading to destruction. The same could be true of other religious faiths. Many of the Muslims of the world are what we would call nominal Muslims. Uh, This morning, this very morning, uh, I heard it on the news. It uh, happened, I think, yesterday. It did happen yesterday. In Kenya, there was a busload of people, of Christians, majority Christians, and then um, the rest were Muslims. And as they were driving down the road and they had left the zone that was, quote unquote, protected, they were ambushed and they sprayed machine gun fire across the bus. And of course, the bus stopped. Um, All the people were ordered out. And uh, they hid some of the women uh, under the bus seats. They gave some of the Christian women um, headdresses to wear. Uh, But as they came out, the Muslims were going to slaughter all the Christian people. Uh, Some of the Muslims, and thank God they were what I would call a nominal Muslim, said, no, no, we're going to protect these people. And if you want to kill them, then you're going to kill us as well. And the gunman left. Thank God. Thank God they did not slaughter all those Christians. But you see, if they were really true Muslims who followed the Quran, then they would be in favor of jihad. Well, what do we mean by jihad? Let's define some term. The the word just means a a struggle or striving. Uh, It's used in different ways in the Quran. I had to read the Quran in seminary. Didn't necessarily enjoy it, but we had to read it so that When we would encounter Muslims, we could say, well, I've at least read your book and I know what its basics are. Um, Jihad is sometimes used to describe a personal struggle within, maybe concerning one's own sin. However, I think for most of us, the most well-known form of jihad is a physical violence or warfare that is indeed sanctioned in the Quran. If you read the Quran, there are 109 verses in the Quran that sanction violence against Christians and against Jews. Christians are viewed as polytheists, people who worship three gods, so they should be killed, and Jews, well, they just hate Jews. And so they follow the Quran, and they also follow a book called the Hadith. The Hadith are supposedly the words of Muhammad, and when you read the Hadith, you there's a passage in there, I don't remember chapter or verse or whatever, but... It basically says that when you, you know, meet your enemies, you give them, you know, three courses of actions. They can either convert to Islam uh, or if they refuse to convert to Islam, you can demand from them a a tax. I think they call it the jizya. 
And if they refuse to give that, then you, you basically fight them and in most cases kill them. Of course, we've seen in recent days, in months, where Christians who refused to convert were beheaded or shot. Uh, some paid the tax and then they were beheaded and shot. Uh, but this is uh, the kind of violence that the Quran sanctions. So we need to ask a fundamental question. Is there any difference between, say, what we read in the Quran and what we read in um, a select Old Testament passage? Uh, people, unbelievers, will often bring up the Canaanites and they say, well, if that's the God of the Bible, where God ordered their destruction, then I don't want to believe in that God. Well, understand first something about the Canaanite people. They were a brutal people. Uh, they were known for their brutality, for their cruelty, for their incest, for their bestiality, for their cultic prostitution, and even offering their children in the fire as a sacrifice to their false gods, and especially to Baal. So they were an aggressive culture who wanted to annihilate the Jewish people. And so when God orders the destruction of the Canaanites, basically what he's doing is he's enacting a corporate capital punishment. But don't ever forget that God was patient with the Canaanites. Uh, If you remember in Genesis 15, uh, God gave a word of prophecy. Let me just turn there for a moment. Genesis chapter 15. And uh, he gives a word of prophecy to uh, Abraham. It says, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon them. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, talking about Egypt, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age. So he's talking um, here about the enslavement that they're going to have. And then God in his patience describes that he is not going to allow this to all happen in his perfect timing until um, the time of the Canaanites has been satisfied. So when the iniquity of the Canaanite is made full, then all this is going to take place. So God basically gave the Canaanite people 400 years to repent. And please understand, they weren't ignorant of what had happened. Um, The news got out, even to someone like Rahab, of the mighty miracles of God that had been performed out there in the desert. And some of them, like Rahab and her family, repented. So no person really had to die. And God's very clear. I think it's three or four times in the prophet Ezekiel. It says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so understand that God, even in dealing with the Canaanites, wanted their salvation. When the scripture says he wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance, he means exactly that. So we we have to remember, too, that when when God sanctioned um, the destruction of the Canaanites, Not all the wars that Israel were in were specifically sanctioned by God himself. In fact, if you read of the wars in the Old Testament, most of the wars that they encountered were defensive in nature. So how do we deal with God's command to kill all the Canaanites, especially uh, the women and the children? Well, several points I think need to be thought of. First, number one, 
you know, when God gives that command, it may well be that not a single woman or a single child was actually slaughtered. How do I know that? Well, I read the prophet Jeremiah, the fourth chapter, and he describes, you know, the noise of the horsemen and the archer. Every city takes the flight. They go into the thickets. They climb into the rocks. Uh, they hide in, in the fields and so forth. And it may very well be that that's what the women and the children did. We have no passage anywhere in scripture that says a single man or woman was slaughtered. Nonetheless, if they were, I think it might have been God's way, God's expression of grace in bringing some of these children immediately into his kingdom. Why? Because we know in scripture from a number of passages, and we cover this in our discovery class on the 10 most commonly asked questions about Christianity And we deal with a two-sided question. One, what about those who've never even heard the name of Jesus? How does God deal with them? And then we deal with not only those who um, are unable to believe because they've never heard the gospel, but those who can't believe. Maybe because they're severely retarded or they're just a little child and they die before their ability to be able to process the gospel and make a response. God's word is very clear. They go to heaven. So God populated, no doubt, heaven with some of the children who were slaughtered. But understand, God was patient. Uh, God was long suffering. God knew that what he had in that community was a community of Adolf Hitler's. And the only way to deal with the cancer was to deal with it in a severe way. But let me just finally say that there's a distinct difference between the violence that you see in the Old Testament that God sanctioned in dealing only with the Canaanites and with uh, what we see the Muslims doing under the title of jihad. First of all, understand that the violence that God prescribes here in the Old Testament is for a particular time, and it's limited to a particular group of people. Um, There's nothing beyond that. There's no precedent to continue this practice beyond what God had specifically commanded in dealing with the Canaanites. But you contrast that with the Quran, where it actually... Uh, endorses and condones military jihad to do what? To promote Islam. And you don't find anywhere in the word of God, Old or New Testament, God commanding his people to kill unbelievers in order to promote the biblical faith that we ascribe to. But that's what you find in the Quran. Uh, It's one of the ways in which they quote unquote evangelize. They evangelize by the sword. And so uh, it's beyond any dispute um, that the earliest years of, of, of Islam were all promoted by the sword. I'm not saying that everyone who fought in the Crusades by any means were believers, but understand what they were up against. They were up against the people who had come out of, you know, Muhammad's teachings directly, who were interested in slaughtering Christians. And so they as believers or maybe nominal Christians went into a defensive mode. And so what we find in Christianity is Christianity spreads in the exact opposite way in the early centuries that Islam spreads. Islam spreads through the sword. Christianity has the sword against it. And in that sense, it spreads because as Tertullian would later write, the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. So both in one sense were spread by the sword. The sword's just pointing in a different direction. And then finally, when you come into the new covenant, now that God has a different relationship, not only with his own people, but with humanity, 
through the spirit who convicts the world of sin, righteousness and judgment very, very clearly. Uh, it's all nonviolent. There's no dictation by God's word for uh, any kind of promotion. And, and it's not anything new, but it's definitely underscored and um, illustrated by the way the early church lives in uh, promotes their faith. So we're talking about two totally different things. And what we're seeing now in the world are people who are actually taking the Quran at face value. Look, Franklin Graham was not at all wrong when he described Islam recently as a violent religion. It is. I mean, the, the only difference is, is that there are Muslims in some parts of the world who actually believe the Quran and take it at face value. I'm glad that there's a whole lot of them who are just nominal, quote unquote, Muslims and not really true Muslims. But there are a lot of Muslims in the world who take the Quran at face value and I know, uh, look, I'm not a Donald Trump supporter. I don't want him for president of the United States. Why not? Because I think he lacks the character necessary to be the president of the United States. But when he was being criticized for saying, look, we need to um, guard our borders. That's wise. That's a biblical principle. And he has certainly made that an issue along with Ted Cruz. Uh, because a nation without borders, Acts 17 teaches, is not a nation at all. God is the one who dictated borders. But he recognizes that there are people in America who have a different view of life. Look, the Muslims that we have here, according to a survey that was done uh, by the Center for Security Policy, I went to a meeting in Colombia in which a number of uh, key national leaders were present. Now, I was thankful that I would be invited and it was uh, on security in our nation. And they discovered, the Center for Security Policy, that 51% of Muslims living in America believe that uh, Muslims should have the choice between being governed under Sharia law, Islamic law, uh, versus the Constitution of the United States. Over half the Muslims that are here already believe that. And the, the, the people that are now coming directly from some of these Middle Eastern countries I think the percentage is much, much, much higher. Um, they said at that conference that 29% believe that violence against those who insult the Prophet Muhammad is acceptable. Um, they believe 25% of them that you can justify global jihad. These are the people who are living here already. And they're raising a multitude of children when Christians are having none. And so we, need, we just need to wake up and smell the coffee and realize what is actually happening to our nation. Uh, and we're at a major, major turning point right now. And, um, you know, we say every election is important and this is the most critical one, but this is definitely a critical one, not only because more than likely the next president will replace four Supreme Court justices. But lay that aside, there are some really critical issues just for the health and safety of our nation uh, to be able to continue. And I hope God will allow us to continue longer that we might, as Christians, promote the gospel. All right, um, let's go to the next question. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. What's on your mind today? Um, well, just we were talking about the Muslim religion. I got to thinking... Now, when um, Ishmael and Hagar left 
to go in the wilderness. At that time, they were still worshiping, I would, I would assume, the God of Abraham, Yahweh. Um, and then God spoke to her and said that he would bless her, and they did. So where did it go from Ishmael and Hagar worshiping God of Abraham to Allah? Well, it's a good question and a fair question. I believe we're going to meet Hagar in heaven, by the way. And, you know, God loved Hagar. You see that. He really describes her in believing terms. And if someone doesn't understand that, they might want to go back and listen to my series on Genesis where Hagar is addressed. Uh, Ishmael, God blessed Ishmael, said he would. Uh, He had 12 sons, just like Jacob later on had 12 sons. But Ishmael had 12 sons that have become the 12 nations of the Arab world today. Uh, But did Abraham raise someone for the fuel of hell? When when the Bible says that God chose Isaac over Ishmael, did that mean that Isaac went to heaven and Ishmael went to hell as some of my hyper-Calvinist friends teach? No, not at all. Uh, God just had a different purpose. Uh, Isaac was the son of promise. Ishmael was not. God chose to bring, he had to choose to bring the line through someone and he chose to bring it through the miracle baby who became a type or illustration of the Lord Jesus himself. But no, as time progressed, uh, Muhammad comes along. Now remember, you know, I got a a Christmas card again this, this, uh, this year. And it's interesting to me because there's a lot of Christians who have what I call Christmas card theology. Last Wednesday night, I did a, a Christmas challenge and We had like 30 some questions and it was a little test of sorts. And uh, there's a lot of Christians who embrace what they think about Christmas more from what they read in the Christmas card than what they actually read in the Bible. But on one Christmas card I again received this year, it shows three wise men. Of course, we don't know that there were three. We know there were three gifts. Probably there were 33. I mean, there was enough to be able to stir up the city of Jerusalem such that They had Herod's attention and he wanted to know precisely what was going on. But in either case, they show these three wise men on three camels and they show a silhouette of the city of Jerusalem in the back and they show Muslim minarets. There were no Muslim minarets. So if you get a Christmas card that year and there are many in Walmart and other places. Now, if you see a picture of old Jerusalem today, you'll see some minarets. But remember, Muslims don't begin until the late 6th century. So Muhammad comes along, and he is rejecting the God of the Bible. He basically um, takes away an affirmed truth that God had said concerning Messiah, that a baby is going to be born, and the baby's name will be called Mighty God, that God became a man. And so he renounces the deity of Jesus Christ, turns Jesus just into a prophet, denies the meaning of his death and resurrection and espouses a false religion. Now the term Allah is not necessarily sinful and evil in and of itself. If you are a born again believer and you live in a Muslim nation that speaks Arabic, the name for God in Arabic is Allah. Uh, If you uh, are, are a Russian, the name for God is Bog. If you are a Greek, the name for God is Theos. So the name for God, Allah, is not necessarily an evil name, but understand the born again Christians view of Allah because they believe in the Allah of the Bible 
is different, and again, it's just a linguistic thing here, but in our minds, when we hear Allah, all we think of is the Muslim faith, and the Allah of the Quran is, of course, far, 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 far different from the God of the Bible. So the Muslims, of course, came with a false religion that was bent on destroying Israel. Look, when, when you have the Iranian president and the Ayatollah saying that he wants to see Israel annihilated, and why on earth we ever made the kinds of deals that we have made with that country is beyond me. We, we just have some people that we need to pray for in our government because they are making some very, very unwise decisions. We have basically given them the finances to carry on jihad and to destroy Israel. And, you know, I, I really believe the only reason God has continued to have his patience with America is because we continue to bless Israel. Those that bless Israel, God said, I will bless. And so I really get nervous when I hear more and more leaders in our country talk about abandoning Israel and their rights that God gave them in the word of God, because when we do that, I will curse those who curse Israel. So uh, with time, of course, along comes Muhammad and he has a, a, you know, a message. And what happens is, is the Bible teaches that when men choose against the truth, they end up believing a lie. Now, there are some people who are in the Muslim faith that are Muslims because that's all they've ever heard. So, you know, I was privileged on my first trip to India to lead some Muslims to Christ. Uh, Just was there and we saw some 800 Hindus come to Christ. Um, Why? Because many were open to the truth and needed to hear the plan of salvation. And when they hear the truth and they're open to the truth, they'll respond to the truth. But there's a biblical principle that if you don't respond to the light you have, John 12, you'll be overcome with darkness. And that's what Muhammad did. He made some conscious, willful decisions to go against the truth revealed in the Holy Scripture. And so he ended up creating a lie, no doubt inspired by the father of lies, wrote a couple of books, you know, that institutes this lie. And there are millions of people who are in favor of this lie. Again, there's, you know, Israel, you know, there's six six and a half million Jews in Israel. There's a hundred million Muslims around surrounding Israel. And it is a miracle that they exist as a nation, but it's a miracle God prophesied would happen in the, in the prophet Ezekiel, that first there would be a physical gathering of the people and they become a nation in one day. And then there's going to be a spiritual uh, rejuvenation of the nation. That's going to happen after the rapture of the church in Israel comes to faith and recognizes Jesus is indeed their Messiah. But in either case, my, my, my point is, is that um, m- the Muslim faith is contained of people who have rejected the truth and believed a lie. But there are Muslims, too who that's all they've heard. And when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, they respond. Hey, look, the only hope we have in America for the, uh, for the soon to be 50 million Muslims that are here, that's, those are the conservative numbers that by 2030, we have at least 50 million Muslims in America. Those are the conservative numbers. And some people want to up those numbers and make those numbers grow by just opening the doors wide or not securing our borders. In which case, you know, we could have 75, 100 million Muslims here by 2030. That's 15 years away. 
And remember, this is a uh, the Center for Security Policy. They do this survey where 51% of uh, Muslims who now live in America believe that they should have the choice for being governed under Sharia law as much as others want to be governed by the U.S. Constitution. And about 30% of them agree that violence uh, that Muhammad sanctions is permissible if someone speaks in any way against the Muhammad, against Muhammad and his faith. And I've done that this morning. And there might be some Muslim listening who wants to take me out. But I can't back down on the truth and what God has said. And, um, and so, you know, you, you've got all these people. And the number, by the way, goes up in that same survey that they did among males that were under the age of 45, the number is 36% believe that violence should be taken out against those who in any way insult the prophet Muhammad or the Islamic faith. Look, I, I can't not say what God says. God says, and it's really in the context of persecution, don't fear them that can only kill the body, rather fear God who can kill body and soul in hell. Remember that, that text that we often quote encouraging people uh, from Matthew 10 to respond to the living God. Um, we use it in that context, but in its original context, he's talking about the fact that there are people who um, want to hurt us, who want to kill us, who want to take us out as believers. And, and really it's a fear of God that will keep us from having a fear of man. And so we need to speak what is true in, you know, Islam is a false religion. Islam and Christianity can't both be true. Islam speaks against the deity of Christ, speaks against the death and resurrection of Christ, speaks against Trinitarians, sanctions, violence against Jews and Christians. Um, it's a false religion. So our only hope, you know, we're talking about, well, how do we control this problem? You know, well, let's, let's get a handle on Facebook and see who these people are. And well, good. I'm in favor of that. I'm not against that. But those are all just band-aid solutions to what is happening in America. Unless these people are converted to the Christian faith, and unless Christians start standing up and speaking about Jesus, because what's happened in America in these lukewarm days is most people in America no longer share their faith. I would dare say that maybe 90% of the people who are listening to my voice right now have not tried to even attempt to share the plan of salvation with someone in the last 60 days, if not longer. That's why America is so sick because Christians have stopped speaking up for Jesus Christ and telling the truth. All right. Um, Rick, I think maybe we have time for another question. Indeed, and, uh, we do, Appreciate Pastor. that caller. So. Our next question comes from Dorina in Augusta, Georgia. She writes in the chapters 4 through 25 of the book of Job, Job's friends counsel him as to why they believe he is suffering. And in chapter 42, God chastises Job's friends for telling Job that his suffering is because of his sin. What can be learned from what his friends said to him? In brief, what truths are there in his friends' counsel, and what error is there? Well, it's a great question, and uh, indeed it is true that when you come to the end of the book of Job, um, God answers Job, and he tells us basically what he thinks about the counsel of his friends, that he doesn't like it, that it stinks. 
Um, and so your, your question really concerns with, well, did everything they say, was everything they said wrong? No. Again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. But many times when a truth is taken out of balance, it is warped. And so we read in 42, 7, and it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have spoken of me what is um, uh, you because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And so he exhorts them, therefore, to uh, repent. So not everything they said was wrong. Obviously, they, they made a lot of false conclusions. Um, they assumed that uh, Job was having all the troubles that he was having because he was a sinner. And actually what God was doing is he was defending Job's righteousness because the devil basically comes into the presence of God. And he says, look, God, the only reason Job loves you is you, because you've, you've bribed him. You bought him. Take away his blessings and we'll really see how much he loves you. And God does that. He takes it all away. And Job says, in essence, though he slay me, yet I will bless him. I'll not curse him. And so Job is faithful to the Lord. He is indeed a righteous man. So what part of his friend's counsel is accurate? Well, when you have other passages of scripture that sanction that counsel, again, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. So if one of his friends say God is holy, they're absolutely right. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God of hosts. Uh, When they tell Job, well, you've got all this trouble because you're a big sinner. They're wrong because that was not the reason that God brought um, this turmoil into the man's life. It can be a reason because uh, there are many reasons for sickness and in calamity. And sometimes it is the discipline of God, but not always. There are other reasons why God allows sickness and heartache and trial into our lives as believers. So these guys were really warped in their theology And that's what often happens is you have a person who mixes truth with error. Um, You know, I I cringe every time I hear Perry Noble because a lot of the things he says is true. But because I know my Bible well enough, so much of what he says is just sheer error. It's just wrong. And yet people today no longer know their Bibles. And so he's uh, sucked out some 30,000 people largely out of uh, Bible-believing churches into his church. And because there's such a deficit of teaching in our day and in basic truth, and people lack discernment. Anyway, we are out of time for today. I'm so glad that you could join us for the Bible Line. Uh, These are always posted online at wagp.net. If you have questions, you can email them in, and we get them before the program starts and when we answer your question you're emailed back that your question has been answered and we're happy to do that anyway thanks again i hope you will walk with jesus christ